Welcome to the Essential Craftsman Podcast. I'm Nate. We have got Riley Kirkpatrick with us today. We've also got my dad, the Essential Craftsman, in this interview. And we're talking about horseshoeing and the craft of being a farrier. We're talking about blacksmithing. It's really interesting. I, I know very little about this whole world, which is kind of ironic because this whole world has been around for centuries, and yet it's, it's certainly not a part of most of our modern lives. Riley is really talented. You may have seen his work on Instagram. He makes beautiful tools. We talk about that part of his business as well. And he's a really neat guy. And this is especially timely. This is a sneak peek for you uh, YouTube uh, folks. But we have a video coming out very soon about a blacksmithing competition, let's say. And this is a completely new type of uh, content that we've put together. And it's maybe one of our favorite projects lately. And I, this, we don't mention it here, but we have been thinking a lot about horseshoeing and blacksmithing contests. So with that as a teaser, without any further ado, Riley Kirkpatrick. Well, the first thing to... I want to talk here. You talk about Riley is about horseshoes, and just for the listeners, don't worry. We're going to start at the beginning. But a person who installs horseshoes is a farrier. It's probably the oldest trade, right alongside like restaurants. You know, it's been around forever. And uh, as far as I understand, that's a big part of your business, what you do. So, can you sort of catch everybody up on how horseshoes work? I don't know if the technology's changed much, and this will. Well, this will lead us into blacksmithing, but it, it, from what I can tell, that's a an area you have some expertise. Yeah, so horseshoeing pretty much started everything for me as far as like where I've gone and uh, to being a blacksmith completely. Uh, you know, like I, I, I was before I ever thought thinking of being a blacksmith, I just wanted to get shoes on feet and make a little bit of money so I could go to like a roping or something, or you know, not pay a farrier pretty much. Uh, it is the oldest trade out there. There is time, like as old as steel has been around and iron's been around, they've been nailing on the bottom of horses' feet. And it's been super important. You know, during major wars, the only things that were going to be made from iron or steel or any of that resource is going to be used on was either going to be weapons or to protect the bottom of horses' feet because horses won wars at that time. And so it's a pretty cool trade that really hasn't changed much at all it really hasn't had a lot happen to it you know we've just been refining the craft over time just like everybody else and technologies came around so we've been able to see inside of the hoof a little bit better and see how horses react to things and we've been able to develop with that but for the most part you know we've just been putting horses legs between our legs and trimming some off and nailing steel to the bottom of them with nail, you know, like a hammer and nail, it's a pretty old school deal. So it's cool that it hasn't changed and that everybody's still working on the basics, but that has been my lead into everything, you know. I grew up with ponies and then Kelly and I lived five years in Powell, Wyoming, Cody, Wyoming, and I worked for an outfitter. And so I could tie a diamond on a mule and, and, you know, I could do that stuff. But and I trimmed a few feet, but I never, ever tried to actually put a shoe on. We had a local farrier named Sam Lee who would do our shoeing, and we had some horses here once we came back to Oregon. And it's a real stunt, kind of working up and down, and the horse is leaning on you, and not every horse is cooperative. And so 
what was the learning curve on that? I mean, so you were a horseman, it sounded like before you started nailing shoes on, but what was the learning curve to go from just trimming off a long toe and, you know, so they're not tripping to actually being able to rasp and fit. And if you started hot shoeing, how long did it take to wrap your arms around that? It it took a while for me to like, I, it was such a brick wall. So like I, growing up around horses, my grandpa was a horse trader and we had horses for like the, you just saw them for a very short period of time and you never really had a good horse around. And so I never really grew up with good horses. I grew up with horses that are kind of nasty. And so I knew how to get around horses at least. And <laughs> then when I started like putting, trimming shoes and stuff like trimming horses and putting shoes on, it was like, it was somewhat easy to grasp because like, you know, you've seen it happen, but I went to horseshoeing school and I saw a horse get shot hot and I kind of like learned how much sensitive structure was in the foot. Oh, um, it was such a brick wall of thought, like of how important this really was before it really, it didn't seem like that big of a deal to me. Like they really didn't seem like there was that much going around because ignorance was just bliss. But then man, once I figured out how exact of a thing it was, yeah, it was night and day because like when you're like, even putting like you guys, I know you guys work on with like wood and framing and stuff. There's no blood involved. Well, this horse is, there's like, there's the hoof wall and then there is sensitive structure. And in between those two things is the thing called the white line. And it's about an eighth of an inch wide. And that's where we drive our nails. And so you have to fit this shoe perfectly to drive these nails perfectly in this white line. If not, you drive it into the hoof wall, which at least the horse isn't bleeding, but you've ruined the integrity of the hoof. Now it's going to start cracking and falling apart. You've nailed too close to the edge. And if you go the other way, now you got a horse that is super not happy in the middle of your lap and he's bleeding and their owner's not happy. And like sometimes these horses are worth a lot of money. And so it can be a pretty big deal, pretty quick, like in a hurry, you know? So it, it was a big mental wall when I realized how important this really was. And that did make it a lot harder. And I took it a lot more serious to learn the craft and how to make sh- sure the shoes are right. And we we're driving the nails in the right way and trimming these horses the right way. What's uh, Can you explain, you said you went to school for it or some sort of school or apprenticeship. Talk about that, how, how that worked. And also the mentors you had, because I'm sure whether it was school or maybe before or after, a lot of people probably had to be looking right at that hoof with you explaining these things. So how does it work? How does a person learn that? And what is the So in America, we are still like the wild, wild west of horseshoeing. Pretty much everywhere else in the world is regulated. We have no regulations here. You like if you if you want to go cut hair, even, you know, you got to get a license to be a barber or a hairdresser. But if you want to be a horseshoer, you just got to buy some tools at the tractor supply store and hang your card up as you're exiting the store and you could be in business by the next day. And there's nothing anybody can do to stop you. There's no grounds they can sue you on, which on one hand is like kind of cool. You know, like we have no regulation and the, the government's not after us. We're pretty grandfathered in. We don't have to have business license or anything else. We just get to go about our thing. But at the same hand, you have guys out there doing damage to animals and like they can't even get charged with animal cruelty, really. You know, they're just, oh, I was just working. The person paid me to do it. This is just what happened. And but there is schools out there all over America 
that are encouraging people to learn and be educated. And there is programs and associations out there that encourage certifications. We have like a, a certified level and then we have like a journeyman level. And so there is things out there for people that want to push themselves. But at the same hand, it can kind of be just a wild thing. Uh, I wasn't good at like school, really. I like metals class. That's about it. And I wasn't good at like my temper when I was in high school. <laughs> so I needed, I went to online high school and I just went and worked with a guy that we rode horses all the time and we built horse trailers. And so he's the guy that ta first taught me how to nail shoes on a horse's foot. He's just like, you know, if we showed up at your place, we were either going to get shoes on your horse, castrate them, or probably float its teeth like something. And they're the reason that we are there is because the horse probably wasn't good. And he always told me that like shoeing horses wasn't a way to make a living, but you could make some enough money to go back to the roping, like, which is pretty untrue. You can make a pretty good living at it. But that, that guy, I, I kind of learned some stuff under him and it was just like, just enough to be dangerous. And his son-in-law was a farrier that made a living at it. And he told me one day, he's like, you know, if you're really interested in this, you need to go to school. And so he told me of a good school. I went to school and like, man, my life changed so much at that point. And I'm, I'm just lucky that I went to a good school. I went to a school in Missouri called Heartland. And those guys are really serious about it. And they taught me how important it was. And it just kind of, I clicked on it. You know, for some reason, it was one of those things that like had metal involved. I liked metal and it had horses. So it just blended together so well for me. And so I, I'm kind of on the different side of the trade of uh, I'm for certifications. I'm for, I wouldn't mind if the government stepped in a little bit, you know, it'd be kind of nice if there's a baseline out there. It's kind of nice when you're on the road that everybody's got a driver's license for the most part. And so, you know, that everybody has these general set of rules. Well, it'd be kind of nice if we had that because right now there isn't, there's guys out there doing damage and they're making a living doing damage. And it's just kind of a sad thing. So I, I looked at some of your Instagram account. So, and, and we've got a lot to talk about, about how beautiful those tongs are. They're just really, really beautiful. Um, but did I see that, that you, that you're creating negative space in the toe of the hoof and then the positive indentation in, in the a matching protrusion in the shoe that fits up into the indentation in the toe of the hoof? Did I see something like that? What is that called? What does that do? And is that your innovation? Uh, so that is called a clip. Like you described it really scientifically though. It sounded really good, but <laughs> it is just uh, essentially a sheer key for the shoe. So it's, so when you put the, uh, take stress off the nails and it also keeps me true to the front of the hoof wall of the foot. Sure. So it's really easy when you're nailing the shoe on that it'll slide back on you and it'll come off the toe of the hoof of the, like the leading edge of the hoof mm -hmm. and the leading edge of the hoof is super important for the horse. It's just like a shovel so we can dig and he has mm -hmm. traction. So you want to stay true to it. So that clip is that clip is pulled with a special hammer. So you hit in just one spot over the edge of the anvil. It pulls a bubble down. You take that bubble and you thin it out. And after that bubble's thinned out, you kind of push it down to the angle of the hoof wall. And after that, we go and we burn the, the shoe onto the foot. Mm -hmm. 
and that we're just burning that into the foot. So it is a perfect little marriage. And that's the reason we burn shoes on for the main part is that we are humans and we're super imperfect. And so there's no way we can take a rasp and rasp four hoofs, four feet down to what we think is level and flat, and then take a shoe on an anvil, hammer it to what we think is flat and level, and then put those together. So when we burn that shoe onto the foot, it's a perfect marriage. And we burn that little clip into there. And so it's flat with the hoof. It's nothing safe for the horse. And it takes the shear off of the nails and keeps us to the front of the hoof wall. So it's a, it's a plus for the horse and it's a big plus for us. So is that, I was just looking at an anvil today. A friend of mine sent a picture of an anvil and I had a clip horn there hanging off the off side of the, of the horn, farrier's anvil, I guess. Is that clip horn on a farrier's anvil specifically for that, for, for driving that bulge, that, that, what would you call it? That dimple. Is that what that clip horn's for, or is that for turning the heels or something? So the clip horn is for pulling clips. It's for pulling that little dimple down. Uh, they would kind of use it backwards. Like now, most of the time, you use a hammer and you create the clip, and you just hang it over the edge. But back then, they would take and they would set the edge of the shoe on that clip horn. That's why the clip horn's usually kind of sharp, and they'd hammer straight down and rotate the shoe away, and that would kind of create the thing. And it was a time where guys, you had to do things really quickly and it didn't really matter how nice it was. And so, and you were really tired. And so you had missed swings with your hammer all the time because they were shooing so many horses. And so it was a way that they can make a clip pretty, pretty accurate with unaccurate swings and very quickly because they were just trying to get done. Can you describe what the, the contests are like? I know you've been involved in some farrier contests. And how, how does that work? How do people compete around horseshoes in this way? And uh, and then we'll probably kind of move into blacksmithing from there. But I, I know you've had some success at those also, from what I understand. Yeah, so there is a like a weird competition world that exists in horseshoeing that really no one but horseshoers know about. It's uh, We go around... And there's the main like uh, there's a main group that we all compete at right now. It's called the World Championship Blacksmiths, and it is a big semi trailer, like tractor trailer, that the sides open up like a DeLorean, and it has it has ten forges on each Coke forges on each side, and a big grain blower powers all of them, and they bring the anvils and everything, and they uh, it's like a series. We go <laughs> cool. To five places throughout the country for the year and your points are tallied for the year and you hope to make a team at the end of the year type deal that's why you'd go to the series and it's kind of cool because they drive around because all you got to bring is your hand tools and so we fly in with a pelican case full of our hand tools and we get to compete but the competition bases are kind of set on like the time limits that those ones are always the same in the formats pretty much always the same the first day is a individual day and your classes are an hour long. We get a flyer a few months in advance that has the specimen shoes on it. These shoes are shoes from the past type deal that uh, I, the judge who is going to be the judge of the contest has picked these shoes out and made the shoes and his, your, the specimen shoes are the like, the contest isn't who can make the best shoe out of that. The contest is who can make the specimen shoe. 
for the flaws and everything. You, it doesn't matter what you think the horseshoe should be. You have to make his specimen shoe. That's that's it. And everybody has the same time limit. So it's not about who gets done the quickest. You want to use all your time. It's about who can make the nicest shoe to the specimen in that time. And it is super competitive. Uh, usually it's an hour long class and you got to make two shoes. The individual class will be lighter shoes. And then there's a two, two man class, which will be heavier shoes. It'll usually be like draft shoes or something like that. Heavier stock. And that guy is like, you got a two man is you got a guy running your fire for you. So you don't burn those shoes up and he's running a sledgehammer for you. So you can get more work done in a short period of time. And man, it get, it comes down to like the 30 seconds. It is, there is dividers being used to space out how far the nail holes are out and everything. The top 10 shoes will all set on that specimen shoe perfectly. They will look like a mirrored copy of it. You can look through the nail holes. Everything is exactly perfect. And if you are slightly off on something, it's going to take you to the bottom of the table almost. It is a super competitive and exact thing that these people are doing. And so you got your two days, your two classes, and your points are kind of tallied from those. And the top 40 of those, which there's usually about 100 guys that show up, the top 40 get a shoe a horse on the last day. And the, you don't get shoe a whole horse. You shoe one foot and you make a specimen shoe and, that's in the, and you have an hour to do it. And it is some of the best horseshoeing you will ever see in the world. These feet look like bowling balls when they're done. Like the shoes are chrome. The feet are polished and completely shined up. You can see yourself in them. Like they, everybody's going up to a leather chamois from like 3000 grit. So it is super, super high end horseshoeing and super exact. Like all of it is good shoeing, but man, just the slightest little imperfection or sway of your knife when you're trimming the horse starts docking you points in a hurry. The, so like that. Out of your three classes, there'll be kind of a winner. And then there's kind of a side pool at the same competition. It's called match play. And if you like are familiar with like wrestling, you go like to a head-to-head match. And so it's like through a tree. You know, you start at the base of the tree and work down to the tip of it. And you go head-to-head elimination as you go. And these are a very flat, fast, high-paced class that... They're shoes that would normally take 30 to 45 minutes to make, and they'll give you 10 minutes to make them. And time will also be knocked off. And so you have uh, guys making Mm -hmm. horseshoes that will usually take, you know, 30, 45 minutes that are getting made in the end at eight minutes. And they're they're being made to a a hoof. So the beginning of it, they – show you a hoof and you are allowed, you just look, get a 10 second look at it. And then you have to go cut a piece of stock of what you think it's going to take to fit that hoof. And then you get, have a very short amount of time to go make it. And Mm. then whoever has the best fitting shoe continues on in the contest. Wow. That's, uh, that's intense. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty high. Go ahead, Dad, if you got it. It's a pretty high athletic deal, like where guys are really kind of going at it. And, you know, you have to stay in shape to be at it. You can tell the dudes that have been practicing it already because, you know, they show up kind of skinny. Their hands are calloused up like they they've been at it in the shop. They've 
burning through stock, just making a pile of horseshoes. They'll never see a horse's foot. They're just trying to win the contest. But if you win, you have pretty good, pretty good, like money coming back there. It's not great. It's more for bragging rights, but there's teams that are made up through these deals. And I won uh, the second team. I got put on like the second rope team a couple years ago, but it's still pretty cool. Uh, so I was in the top 10. There's five guys on each team and we got to go over to England and we went to, we went over to England and we got to compete against those guys. And it was, it was really a cool eye opening thing because England's kind of the, it's kind of the homeland for us, for like the blacksmiths and for the farriers, you know, like they've always kind of had the mark on the wall and they still have the mark on the wall as far as like education goes. Those guys, it's it, being a farrier in England is up there with being a doctor or a lawyer. It's a really high class thing. When they show up at banquets, they're in suit and ties and they're really finely dressed. Uh, they have to go, they have to be selected for an apprenticeship to be able to go to college. They go to college and then after college, they have to, you know, a four year college. Uh, we're learning other things as long as taking blacksmith classes and horse husbandry classes. Then they go and they take a four-year apprenticeship with a ma an approved master. And then after the apprenticeship, they have to take their test. And when they have to take their test, they I think they only get three tries. And if they fail in the three tries, you're not allowed to ever be a farrier. So it's like, it's a, it's a super serious deal. But when those guys leave their apprenticeship, wow. they are light years ahead of us. Like there's guys over here that have been shooing horses for 30 years and you could take a kid over there that's been shooing for eight years and he will put a whipping on him anywhere. Like he, they are very, very fine tuned machines over there. So it is getting to compete over there was a big honor. And it was really cool to kind of see where you measure up against him. And we did pretty good at, uh, no matter what though, they got a stigma against us. <laughs> they, they won't ever let us win. So it's, we're always going to be the bridesmaid over there, no matter how it shakes out. <laughs> So let me ask you this. I got, a, I got a couple questions and this lag time is making it hard, right? I mean, it, it makes it hard, but so I'm just going to give you two or three questions and you just riff on them. First of all, so what you described with the shoeing competition, I was thinking at the beginning that it was like a rodeo, that if you drew rough stock, if you, if you drew a kicker or if you had somebody that was leaning down on you, that, I mean, it was a big handicap and a hard thing to recover from. So speak to that. Where do you live? Let us know where you live because we're in we're in Roseburg, right? I think just down the road from you. But anyhow, bring us up to speed on that. Um, would you rather shoe on the front or shoe on the back? I mean, the back foot or the front foot? And then la last thing right now, just talking about those guys in England. So you went over there and you competed pretty well. And I hear that they are impressive and they're well-trained. But do you ever feel like you, you like you guys walked away from there and they went, huh, those guys can do the work? Did you get their attention a little bit? Or was it just like, you know, whatever they, that confirmed their, their confirmation bias about the Yanks. So it is, it is kind of a dilemma of what horse you draw, uh, when you go to these competitions. Cause usually it, that's one of the hard things of putting on a competition is getting the horses. And so you got to get enough horses for everybody to shoe. And so if you've got 40 guys that need to shoe, you got to get 10 horses and 
it's a little and so you just kind of get placed at an anvil you get an anvil number and whatever horse is standing in front of that anvil that's the horse you draw and that's the foot you draw so some feet are really tore up and really nasty some feet are really nice so that draw can help you some horses stand like a rock and some are nasty uh thankfully usually we have a vet on site they'll give them a little bit of drugs calm them down and thankfully the, by the time you get to the top 40 guys, those guys are pretty good horseshoers. And so they are pretty good horsemen. And so we really don't get too many excited horses. It's really surprising because we bring them in under a tent, pretty much under these like awnings. And they're in front of these loud blowing coke forges. And we're swinging away at anvils five feet in front of their face. And they're crammed in there with a bunch of other horses, people standing around like it's a loud and commotion thing. And I've, I've never seen a blow up. I've been going like knock on wood. I've been going to him for quite a while and I've never seen a horse blow up because guys are pretty good. It, you'll see horses act up every once in a while, but they're usually like the same guy makes horses act up every time. It's the guy, you know, he's just kind of like pulls them in an uncomfortable spot <laughs> or he's kind of not patient with them or he's, he's, he's stressed anyways because he's under a time limit, you know? And so that's, I think that's kind of where it comes from. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's usually just that deal. Where do you live, man? Are you a neighbor? Are you clear on the east side of the mountains? Or are you up in the, in the armpit of Portland <laughs> or what? I'm, I'm a little bit in the armpit, man. Uh, so I'm in between McMinnville and Sheridan. And so thankfully we're, we're in the foothills of the coast range. Mm. Uh, it's kind of weird because you look around and we're in the woods, but we have a bunch of people where these are their vacationing homes, a bunch of people that shouldn't be in the country out in the country. But yeah, I live out in the woods. That's why we have horrible internet service. And, but it's the way of life that we really like. We live in a little farmhouse, but we rent it on a hundred acres. We have a landlord that's really cool. Let's me do whatever I want in the shop and lets us use the land kind of however we see fit. So we get a lot of hunting, trapping done here and just get to enjoy life the way we kind of enjoy to live it. Uh, it's, it's not for everybody, but we are, we are in one of the good parts of Oregon. I truly believe, man, it's, it's a beautiful state, but there's just bummer parts of it, but they're small. I'm originally from down kind of your guys area. I was born in Coos Bay. And we lived in Port Orford when I was first born. Mm -hmm. Most of my family's from the Langlois, Bandon area. Uh, my dad was a commercial fisherman. He crab fished out of Newport. And so, and all the rest of my family was loggers. My grandpa owned uh, a lumber mill out on Cape Blanco. And that's, I, I hope to go back down to there. That's kind of where we're looking mm -hmm. for properties in the Bandon area. Cause I, I really like that area. Well, tell us about that contest, that, that final question there. Um, do those Brits have any respect at all for the contest aspect? And then we'll move on to blacksmithing. Oh, man, the, the English are scared of us. Like, really, they are. It's pretty funny when we show up because everybody tells you about it before you go. They're like, just be ready for it. They're going to treat you like crap. Like, that's just the way it goes. And but it's, they come over here and you think like, oh, I've met them before. They're pretty nice guys. Like that's because they're on your turf and they're trying to suck up to you a little bit. It's always a contest, you know, and they, you go down there, like the first day we show up, 
we just ask them where the steel is and stuff for the practice steel. Everybody just turns their back to you. They don't answer you. They had already been trying to uh, kick our group out of the contest to get us to where we couldn't compete because we they were we were trying to say who we weren't who we like saying we were worse than we actually were and we were trying to sandbag them or something. So they were really trying hard to like not let us compete. Uh, and no matter what, like here we like we make everybody follow the rules of the competition. No matter what. Over there was the first time I've seen just like blatant out in the open kind of cheating, doing whatever they want to do. Like usually any type of polishing is not allowed at like WD-40 on the foot because it'll just shine it up to like no tomorrow. Well, these guys are just over there spraying their feet down with WD-40 right in the open. Like the stewards are handing them the rags to wipe the WD-40 in a little bit better. <laughs> and no matter what, all their judging is behind closed doors. And so you can't win there. Like it's just never happened. But it's kind of nice because some of those guys that are really good, they come back over here and, well, we don't really let them win here. So, but all the judging's out in the open here and we all kind of follow the rules. So you can tell like at the bar at night and stuff, they, they treat you with respect because they know what you can bring. But when it comes to competing, they're going to use whatever they have on their favor to not let us win on their land. <laughs> it's just the way it goes. <laughs> That's really cool. Uh, these these type of work competitions are fun. And my my mentor, go ahead. He kind of told me he's like, the first year you go over there, you think you have a chance, and they just piss you off. The second year you go over there for revenge, and by the time it comes to the third year, you go over there just to say hi, and you know you're not going to win. Like <laughs> it's just you finally come to grasp with what's what what reality is. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned a, a bit ago that it was your, um, a family member, I think who told you, you can actually make a living being a farrier. So speak to that a little bit. Um, what type of a trade it is, um, uh, financially in terms of, is it feasible to do this as a career? Number one. And then number two, let's talk about blacksmithing because it looks like you're filling in the cracks of your, of your day and time with, uh, some really beautiful blacksmithing work. That's totally separate from the horsemanship aspect of the trade. Shoeing horses definitely can be a trade that you can do very well at. You can have a very good life. There is guys out there making six figures every year and, you know, they're doing very, very all right. Uh, it's like any trade. You have guys that are very talented on the skill end of it, but they are horrible on the business side of it. You have guys that are good on the business side and they're horrible on the skill side. And you have guys that are just all right in the middle. Like, you know what I mean? You have every aspect of it, but there is very good money in the horse world. Horses are very important to these people. Uh, the day of horses where they were a using tool are gone. They, they, I mean, they exist in very small pits of the world, but in pits of America, but it's, it is gone for the most part. They are, these are pets. And these are athletes to these people that are competing on them. And so they're willing to spend more money into them. And there is more money in that world already just because of what it is. And so there, a guy can make a pretty good living because it's, you're going to shoot a horse like around here, 200 bucks to get a horse shod for all four feet. And that horse needs to be reshod every six weeks. 
And the, the normal guy probably has 300 horses on his books that he's doing. So he's going to do five horses a day or, you know, or so. And he's shooing five days a week if, if he wants or more. And so it's e- it's easy trade to get burnt out in because guys get greedy just like any other thing. And it's an easy trade to do bad in because guys don't know how to charge and they just wear themselves out and they're not good businessmen. So it's, but it, it can be a very good financial world. Uh, it's, it's been great to me pretty much, but it, it's dangerous, right? Horses are a very nasty creature. And if you need those numbers to make your business, well, then percentages, you have to shoot bad horses. You just, there is horses out there. You know, you have one client that she owns 20 horses and she has a training facility that has horses coming in and out of it. Well, the likelihood is she's going to have two or three that are new coming in and are, are not good, but you just have to do them type deal. That's kind of what pushed me to the blacksmithing side of everything. Uh, I started making my tools because I was broke out of horseshoeing school and I wanted to go to shoeing competitions and I wanted to learn to make new shoes. And so you needed more tools. And so I could kind of find scrap metal and stuff like that. And I had a forge, I had an anvil. And so I just kept on trying to learn how to make these tools so I could use them to make shoes and go to these competitions. And then I kind of learned, I was making a little bit better tools and nicer tools. And I would sell them at the competitions or sell them to buddies right beforehand so I could pay to go to the competitions. So I was making a little bit more money. And it just slowly kind of, I just started realizing that I was taking orders from more and more people and I was doing it more and more that I could afford to say no to the bad horses. And it is like, and I could afford to not put so many miles on my pickup and on the trailers and be traveling all the time that I could just be in the shop making some stuff and sell it. And it was a, it was another little side income, but it kind of took over, took over because I just got enough orders and I started getting better at tools. So then like all of a sudden it was was confusing if I was going to identify as a horseshoe or a blacksmith, you know what I mean? Depending on the day, but it was to me is a good transition because I didn't have the chance of getting hurt or breaking down somewhere type deal. I got kicked by a horse when I was 17 and they took out a bunch of like my guts, uh, like he messed up my stomach, my liver, my kidney. Like he did a number on me and it's kind of a big realization that you're not Superman uh, and horses are very dangerous and it can happen in a split second. And so I just, I, I wanted to get away from bad horses as soon as I could. I, I wasn't, I really wasn't getting the hype anymore of dealing with them. It wasn't fun. It's was no longer. So it was a lot more fun being in the shop, learning to be a blacksmith and learning how to forge and make tools. And so that's just kind of where I went. I, uh, it, I did get a, like, there was a point in there where I was forced to do it. Uh, more because I took on too, way too many orders for my tools. And so I got swamped and I just, it kind of happened without knowing it was happening, just being ignorant completely to like selling an item. And so I, I thought I was like, oh, the best way to do this is to take people's money as a deposit, keep track of it, put them on the calendar. I knew how long it took me to make the tools and stuff. And I was like, just doing that. Well, all of a sudden you're like a year and a half out you know, and no matter what you tell these people that you're like, Hey, I'm a year and a half out. And they're like, okay, cool. Here's the money. (laughs) Give it two months. And they are ready for their item and they are going to bother you Hmm. nonstop. And so it just, 
and it turned into <laughs> that of like I felt bad going hunting, I felt bad mowing the yard, I felt bad just hanging out. I was like, man, I owe somebody something. Like I have to just stay in the shop and keep doing this. And so I wasn't taking on any new horses, or I was trying. I was getting rid of horses if anybody gave me slack. I was like, man, I I can't deal with this. I need to be in the shop anyways, and I need to be getting that done. And so I just kept on doing that, and you just kind of get in a hole of like you want to stop taking orders because it just sucks and you're tired of people and, but you need money. And so we just kind of hit a point where we had like some saved up and we realized that like, man, we're just going to stop the orders and we're going to go and we're we're just going to catch up completely. Like me and my wife agreed on it and that's what we did. So I stopped taking orders. I completely caught up on, I, I was when I stopped taking orders, I was about a year and a half out and I was able to get them done in about six months. I just kind of stayed in the shop. I was tired of it and I wanted to that point in my life to be over. Mm. And so I completely caught all the way up. And now I just sell tools as I can get them done. I just make what I want to make what's on my mind. Uh, Usually I kind of like secretly hope I'm going to make something and no one's going to buy it and I get to keep it. So that's, I, but like, I have a lot of free time now to do that because of how things just went. I was forced to kind of take all this hiatus from horses to get all this catch up done. And I still just kept the same type, the same clientele. I have a very small clientele. A lot of guys probably have 300 horses on their books. I have 60. Uh, I just, they're good horses. They're good clients. I like to take care of them. I like to keep their feet really nice. I really enjoy going to them. I enjoy that whole part of it. And now I have more free time in the shop to be free of what I want to make. And I think it comes out a better product. And I, I'm not, I don't owe anybody anything. You know, I always had that dilemma beforehand. Like if I died, like, man, has my wife got to pay all these people back? Like, well, I could die tomorrow and I, I don't owe anybody anything yeah. right now. It's a, a free world. <laughs> Are you familiar with or have you ever been connected with the Northwest Blacksmith Association? Yeah, so I I am I am associated with them. I was going to do their demo at their uh, spring conference last year and then the coronavirus hit and it got canceled. Uh right. I did do a demo for them. Like uh they've been doing these like weekend demo deals that are pretty cool. And so I, I did a demo for them. We made a top and bottom fuller mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we're doing another demo, I think coming up on uh, mm-hmm. like at different aspects of swinging a sledgehammer for a person being a striker in the blacksmith shop. So yeah, I am a part of them. And I think that, I think that's a really good, good deal, man. It's a pretty good yeah. local association. Right on. They're a great outfit. And I, I think my membership has lapsed because my schedule got overbooked about 10 years ago, but I went to, I don't know, maybe seven or eight of their conferences with Cy when I first stepped into blacksmithing and met Daryl Nelson and, and just, he's a great guy. I went up and took a class from him. Um, uh, Mark, Mark Asprey taught a class up there on, on, um, joinery. And I took that and that was a big help, but I was hoping that you were part of that outfit because you live right up there on the edge of their territory, right? They're real big up through Washington and Centralia and, and up to Seattle. And I hope that you were able to access that. I was going to ask you, um, so Grant Sarver, you're young enough. You, he may have been dead by the time you were diving into this real hard, but Grant Sarver, uh, off center tools really filled up the tool forging niche 
from the Pacific Northwest. And it sounds like maybe uh, his tools were not as, didn't have the aesthetic value that yours had. They were real practical, well-balanced, everything fit well. And, you know, he sold them at, at a price that was maybe 20% higher than, you know, Centaur Forge or something. Do you have any desire to really to start mass producing tools or are you strictly a one-off straight to the order, make them beautiful, send them out the door and get your money? I, I am a one-off guy. Uh, I have no interest in high production numbers of really it's, that's not the type of horseshoe I've ever wanted to be. And it's not the type of toolmaker I like to be. I really, no matter what, if you're doing production, there's going to be imperfections. So they might be they might not notice, but it might just be a scratch mark from the grinder or something like that, you know, just a little sharp spot or something. No big deal. Uh, it's just not what I'm wanting to sell. I have friends that are in the production farrier tool world and they they're made in America, good quality tool. And, but their, their tools are probably a third of the price of what my tools are. And so like, I, I, I kind of look at my tools a little bit as like the spur making deal or a bit making deal. Uh, you know, me and Ben Snure were just talking about this the other day. It's like, I still want the tool to be super functional and have all the basics and be like the, one of the best hammers you've ever swung. It's super comfortable right out of the box. You know, like it is a, a ready to use broken in well tool, but I want it to be fancy. Like I, I want it to look really good. I want, when you pull that thing out, everybody's wondering where you got it. Like, mm -hmm whose name's on it. Uh, I think that's a, a pretty special thing that's not really, really besides Ben Snure, I don't know like too many other guys that are, are nailing the fancy tool making world. You know, it's just not out there. Like it's, it's a lost art where back in the day that, that was a thing, you know, you see like hand planes and stuff like that they were engraved and had like somebody spent so much time on them and hammers were the same way where now they're just like nobody really knows and everybody's complaining about these tools and hammers but it's like these things have just been lost the little touches of how a hammer face should be pillowed how a handle should really be fit up why a neck is on a hammer like you know it's just so many things that are gone and these little basics that like that I, I'm trying to nail those, but I'm just trying to nail them as much as I can. And I, I am okay with cutting out the middleman in that aspect and gaining my money from there. So I, I mm -hmm. do get a premium for my hammers mm -hmm. and I am selling direct right to the person. So I do think it's more uh, like either way you shake it. It's a more intimate sale. Like they know me, I know them. It's very direct uh, and they know they are every cent they're paying for is for the work I put into that piece. You know, I, I feel like both parties are getting the maximum out of it. So I'm, I'm really happy with how mm -hmm. things are right now and how I'm selling mm -hmm. things. Uh, that's really cool. Well, um, we'll probably wrap up, but a couple things to f finish on. First off to your tools. I love that you are your tools are simultaneously fancy and super elegant. And at the same time, so simple. It's they're not engraved. They're extremely simple and just like the, the real down to the essence. So it's just stunning work. And I hope everybody looks at your Instagram feed. And my second question is how do people get an order? Do they just watch your Instagram and comment? Or if someone's listening to this and is in the mood for a, a fancy hammer or set of tongs, 
how do they go about locking one down um, as it comes off of your anvil? This this is probably the biggest complaint. Uh, it's a little bit of a complaint for me of how I do things. And the biggest complaint I get from people is uh, I don't, I'm not making very many. And so there's not very many to sell. Uh, I just post them to Facebook. Like I never sell anything from Instagram. It never, it just never worked for me. I never really get that many bites. Uh, I just pretty okay. much, I post the same pictures to Instagram that I do to Facebook. But if someone's looking to buy one, uh, you follow my Facebook and I will post it for sale. And I just have the person privately message me if they're interested in it. Uh, it's thank like, thankfully they, they sell, uh, they usually sell within 10 minutes or under. And so it's, uh, cause I just don't make very many and there's a lot of horseshoers out there. Uh, yeah. and so that, that is right now is how, how I'm making things and how somebody can yeah. buy. Uh, other than that, you can just follow me on Kirkpatrick forge on Instagram, but I'm not really, I'm not, I'll take an order if something's really, really cool. If you got something out of the box that I want to make that's really sparks my interest, I'll probably take that order. But man, if you're just looking for a hammer, you just got to follow on Facebook and I'll, I'll post them when they get done. <laughs> well, I love it. Thanks so much, dad. Do you have any final question or any last thing you want to, um, I, I just out have, Riley while we have him? Yeah, I just have one thing. So I think that I have invented a new hammer, right? How often does that happen in, in the last five or 6,000 years? But I have a I have a very unique um, hammer design, and Brent Bailey made me one. But Brent's been drawn off into some other things, and um, I might send you a carved oak prototype that you can just look at and see if you'd be interested in making me one of these things. Um, like I say, he made me one, and it works so beautifully. And I've had a lot of interest on the channel. Where'd you get that hammer? I've never seen one. Yeah, that's right. You haven't seen one like that because it's the only one on the planet, and. Uh, so I think I'll mail you one of those, one of my blocks so you can look at it and kind of see what it's like and, and see if you'd be interested in cranking one out. Yeah, that's a tall order to try to notch up to Brent Bailey's work, but I'm willing to take a swing at it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Brent does great. You know, he does great, but he just has been drawn into some other things and it's just, it's not going to work for him. It, it, it's a, it's a six pound steak driving hammer with a, couple of adaptations which i think are kind of interesting but brent's a great guy i stopped by his place down there on my last trip to california i went down to get a platen table and stopped and visited with him and got a nice situation and and uh, it was really great i guess nate before we let him go we need to hear about your power hammer what is that red beast is that a nasal or a chambersburg or what is that thing i, w I wish i could say it's an american-made hammer but it's not it is a german-made hammer it's a demore and it is a 385 pound ram weight. So it's a pretty big hammer. It's a self-contained hammer. They're made super heavy and robust. So it is a, a very well-made hammer. And the guy, I got it out of Seaside, Oregon. And he got it from a guy out of Vancouver, Canada. Mm -hmm. And the hammer did, really didn't have much use on it. And so I, I got a pretty spanking deal on it. Because it's kind of, once hammers get big, they start getting a little bit cheaper because they're so expensive to do everything else with. So nobody really, not that many people are interested in them, but that is a very low hours hammer that is very big and very controllable. Uh, but man, I learned, I, I, it was, it's my first power hammer. I've ran a bunch of them, but I it was my first one I've owned and put in my shop. And so it was just like learning curve after learning curve after learning curve of like, 
it was so heavy to move. It weighs 18,000 pounds and it's in two pieces. The anvil weighs 6,000 pounds mm-hmm. and you have to like just finding the guy to move it. Thankfully we live in logger country. Mm-hmm. And so I found a guy that with a low boy that put that thing on of it and really wasn't scared of it at all. Uh, my dad is a, a heavy equipment operator. He like, he runs underground construction and putting deep poles in the ground. And so he wasn't really too worried about moving all the big stuff, but it was a big learning curve of getting a power to my shop, learning about three phase. I had to dig a 10 foot by five foot by six foot hole in the shop to fill with concrete to have a big enough base underneath the thing. And then we still like we we had to cut a hole through the roof so we could crane, get a strap through so we could crane the hammer on top of the anvil because it was you just had it. You have to get like three feet of clearance to get over the top of the mm-hmm. anvil. So it was just a, a huge learning curve. But man, as soon as I turn the thing on and go to using it, I don't remember any of it. All I remember is how sweet the thing is and how fast it works. I can take uh-huh. a piece of three inch round and just turn it into half inch thick steel and just a run like it it's a very strong hammer into the same hand and i can slow it way way down and i can slightly crush a pop can if i want it's a it's a delight to use so it was worth all the hassle that's awesome um well riley thanks so much first of all for coming and uh, we will link to your work and all of your Instagram, Facebook, and I hope our people take a look visually at the tools we talked about because you'll get it when you see them. Um, they're really something. Anytime you come down I-5 and you're coming through Roseburg, come out to the shop. would love to show you the shop. And uh, and I, f- frankly, if I'm ever up your way, I'd love to watch your power hammer run. Yeah, you're welcome whenever, man. I'll be down in your guys' neck of the woods this weekend, but I'll be in the woods. I'm trying to get that spring bear tag filled so it can be done for springtime. <laughs> oh, Riley, you know what? I just saw an ad on Craigslist. I'm not kidding. A guy said, anybody have a spring bear tag? We have a couple, like a bear problem or something. He had some <laughs> pictures of some bears. I don't know what the situation was. I thought it was a funny ad, but I'll see if I can find that and send it to you because there might be like a free <laughs> yeah. bear for the taking. I don't I don't know what's going on, but funny you should say that. Let me... Uh, I'll, if I find that, I'll send it to you. You might have like some low hanging fruit there. <laughs> got a busy life. I'll take it. All right. Well, thank, thanks again, my friend. Yeah, and uh, we will be in touch. Nice to meet you, hey, and hey, hopefully you. we see you soon. Have a nice good one. to meet you, Riley. <laughs>